Open your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to do this a little bit out of order the next few weeks, but I really felt led to go to this passage um, this week. I was in Ecuador when it's a very, very familiar story, and the danger of familiar stories are that we really don't study them and read them when they're preached or when we hear them preached. Uh, we just kind of go, I know this story, and so um, we jump ahead. Tell me what it's about. So I want you to be in the text this morning. I want to ta- challenge you to do that. I'm not going to read the text all together because we're going to almost do the entire chapter of 6, uh, 1 through 25. So um, I'm going to walk you through it as we go. But when I was a child, I loved cats. Um, I know that's going to be a surprise to you because you know me better than that now. I, uh, I know I often send a lot of hate toward cats from the pulpit, and... The reason is because I'm a dog person. Um, dogs are man's best friend. I have never been rubbing a dog's belly, and when that dog gets tired of me rubbing its belly, um, that dog bite me. It's true. You cat people, I was talking to a cat person in Ecuador um, Thursday, and I, told, I said, this is going to be my story to start off with, and I told him, and he said, I have a cat, and I love cats, and I told that story, he said, my cat bites me when I um, pet it for too long. A dog, there's no such thing as petting a dog for too long. It will love you and lick your face at the end of that. The cat will claw your face at the end of it. It's just true, and so what I've learned about cats, um, it just kind of got to thinking about that. There is one cat in my life that I love. She sits right over here. It's all the cat that I need, see? Um, but uh, what I learned about cats, when you, when you think about my namesake, when you think about the name Daniel, I have a history with cats. And so I think maybe my hatred for cats is rooted in the Bible. I don't know. Um, because we're going to read a story of Daniel today in a lion's den. This is what really caught me about cats. That cat, um, thank you, um, I'm about as dehydrated as could be. And um, when you breathe in 9,000 feet oxygen for seven days, and then you come to Texas, there's a big change in oxygen, and so um, I, keep, um, I keep getting black spots every now and then, so uh, I said, that way if I need to sit down, I can sit down while I preach, so um, y'all know me better than that, I'm going to walk the whole time, but uh, I told, told my wife uh, just to be prepared just in case, so this is what I realized about cats, that kitty cat that bites you and claws you, it's really not any different than the lions in the story today. It thinks it's ripping your face off. It thinks it's biting your hand off. The only difference between this cat and this cat is what? Size. That's the only difference. Um, That cat, I got, one time I was petting a cat. I had a cat named Kitty that I loved, and Kitty slept at the foot of my bed. Um, Isn't that a genius name for a cat? And, uh, man, I just love Kitty. And Kitty, um, you, would, you would pet Kitty. And when Kitty got tired, one time I was petting Kitty and scratching Kitty behind the ears. And Kitty got tired of that, jumped up on my lap, bit my finger, and scratched me from here all the way down. And, I mean, it was like six months uh, before that healed in my face. And I got to thinking about that later. What Kitty thought it did, if Kitty had been the size of a lion, Kitty would have killed me. If Kitty had been the size of a lion, Kitty would have took off my whole hand. Kitty didn't realize that she's that much smaller than me. She was doing what cats do. So I just want you to think about that when your little kitty sat beside you. Um, 
and you think, oh, my cat loves me, your cat might look at you like I look at a steak. Your cat just may not be big enough to do anything about it. But if your cat was, it just might. And so I, I want us to look at this story about a man named Daniel that learned to, to pray and stand on prayer in a culture that was doing everything that commanded or told him to bow to the world. And this is a cat story, so um, watch, watch as we walk through this later. But I want you to see something you may not realize at this point. Daniel is going to be thrown where? Help me out. Into a lion's den. And oftentimes, um, well, let's just see. Let's throw out a guess. I don't want to embarrass you, but how old, how many of you think Daniel was between 15 and 25 years old? 15, 25. Any takers? Got lots of takers. How about 25 to 35 years old? Got some takers there. How about 40 to 50? 60 to 70? One or two? 70 or 80? One, two... 80 to 90. Three. One. Would you be surprised if I told you that Daniel that was thrown in the lion's den was over 80 years old? You just went. Because we always have this picture of this young, bold believer being thrown to these lions, and we don't picture a, a gray-headed or bald-headed. I don't know why I pointed, but... Uh, <laughs> Or gray-headed and bald-headed. Uh, we, we typically don't picture um, an 80-year-old man. And so I want you to change your um, thought here. You know, we've been studying we, uh, these boys, these teenagers that were brought to Babylon. They were given new names. They were forced to live in a new culture. Nebuchadnezzar had this idea that he would retrain them and make them good Babylonians and no longer God-serving, uh, God-fearing Israelites. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar tried to do. Well, now we are fast-forwarding in Daniel's life. He's lived in Babylon almost eight decades. He is, he's, he's basically served his whole life in this pagan culture. Now, we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. He's out of the picture here. And now we're looking at a king named Darius. Uh, there's even a new king that's ruling here. He's the third king that Daniel served under in Babylon. As an 80-year-old man, um, what we're going to read this morning is uh, King Darius gets this idea, and he chooses 120, and your Bibles have a really weird, weird word there called satraps. It's not a word we use very often, um, but it basically means protectors of the kingdom. So uh, in the Hebrew, that's what that word means. So he puts over these 120 kingdom protectors, he puts three administrators over them. We're going to read that in just a second. And Daniel was actually one of those three. So Daniel's been around a long time. He's been very strong and, and, and really productive and faithful in Babylon uh, and successful. And so let's go to verse 1 in chapter 6. And I, see, I just want you to see how this story unfolds this morning. Um, it goes like this. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps, those kingdom protectors, to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom... What, uh, whom was Daniel. So here's Daniel. Um, and the satraps, it says, they were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So the king's goal in this, according to the text, he didn't want to lose money. He didn't want to lose power. He puts them over these specific places. And verse 3, it says, now Daniel so distinguished himself, he was so good uh, among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. 
And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So that's how powerful Daniel had become. He was second only to one, which was King Darius. Sounds like a really good day to get that kind of promotion. And that's what happened. It was a promotion. But I want you to see that what looks like a promotion from the outside actually brought a lot of trouble to the inside. How do you think, if there's three administrators over 120, and one of these administrators gets picked to be over everything, how do you think these other two administrators felt? Let's just be real. You've got a job, and you're equal with three of your employees, and the boss comes in to one of, your employee, one of the people you work with and says, I'm going to promote you, but you two I'm not going to promote. That's what happens in this text. Those three administrators are, um, one of them is picked, Daniel is picked, and so the other two administrators, they get really jealous. They get really angry, and they say, you know what, let's take this guy out. Let's falsely accuse him, and let's just get him out of the picture so that one of us can have the role, or we can share the role. We're going to take him down. And so it's that reason that they go after Daniel. Sometimes people think that they just don't like Daniel praying or don't like Daniel's God. It's not that. They just want money themselves and power themselves. And so they're going to make up this story um, about Daniel. That's their goal. And so from Daniel chapter 6, what I want you to see, and we're going to talk about three truths of standing in prayer from this book. Um, the first one, if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. I have it on the screen. It's not fun. I know it's not a comfortable point, but it's a very true point. When God raises you up to a position, you can expect people in the world to try to tear you down. When God raises you up to a position, you can expect very, very soon, and use it very quickly, people or the world to try to tear you down. Um, I want you to think about that. A lot of times people uh, get saved. They, they want to follow Jesus. They get super excited about Jesus. And one of the things that I warn new believers about, I'll say, hey, get ready. Because you made this decision for Christ, and you're standing up for Christ. And I'm going to tell you, the world, even many Christians, will do everything they can to pull you down from Christ. And I don't mean to pick on us today as a church, but... Man, sometimes we do this. We, somebody says, you know what, I'm going to live differently than the world around them. And we look at their life and we feel convicted because we don't necessarily live differently than the world around us. And so we, we attack those people. And so somebody says, you know what, um, I'm not going to be in debt and have credit cards. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live debt free. And so that means I'm going to drive a you know, 1992 uh, you know, car around, and it's going to backfire when I drive it, and, it, and the paint's going to be all rusty on it, and I'm not going to have the brand new iPhone um, I, every time. I'm, I may still be back on the old flip phone days, and I'm not going to be worried about the clothes that I wear because I, I'm not going to be in debt. I'm going to be more concerned about God's kingdom and living for Him, and I'm not going to watch the things you watch, and I, my kids are going to live differently, and so people take this stand, and the world uh, should come against them, but sadly, so many times, also, people in the church actually come against They say, you're just weird. You're different than everybody else, and so we begin to tear each other down. I'll never forget in college, I had a friend that we were at Blockbuster Movie. Now, I know you students, you don't even know what Blockbuster is. But back in the day, if you wanted to watch a movie, you couldn't just download it. You had to get in your car and go and rent it. And you'd go in a movie, and, uh, and you'd walk up and down all the aisles, and you'd find a DVD that you wanted to watch. And so that was something that me and college friends on a Friday night, 
Man, we'd go and uh, go eat at Taco Bell. We'd go rent a movie. It was cheap entertainment for $2.50, and we'd come home and watch it. And I remember being in Blockbuster one time, and there was this movie that all of us wanted to see, and or all them, they really wanted to see it, and they they pick it up, and, man, I get to looking at it. It's a rated R movie. It's not a good movie. Um, not only was it rated R, I'll put it that way, it was unrated. That's even worse, right? And I'm looking at this movie, and, and I could tell, yeah, it's supposed to be really funny. Everybody, and the actors in it were really funny. And they said, everybody's talking about this movie. We ought to see this movie. And I'm thinking, we probably ought to not see this movie. But, you know, hey, I, I love to laugh. Let's rent a funny movie. And so there was this one guy with us, and he said, guys, I'm not going to watch that movie. Y'all can pick that movie, but I'm not going to watch that movie. And I remember one of the guys there said, oh, come on, don't be that way. It doesn't matter. I mean, we'll fast forward through the bad parts. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. He said, guys, I think that movie's going to be full of language. Um, I think it's going to have tons of, uh, yeah, you know, sexual innuendo and talk in it. He said, I, I'm just not going to watch that movie. And I remember there was, I mean, probably 10 of us Christian guys there. One of them was standing strong. And we said, we, we all did. You know what? What are you, holier than all of us? Ooh, see how the, I taught, I taught this week, never make yourself the hero of a story. I said, don't worry, I never am. We're just broken. And yeah, I knew it was wrong to watch that movie. And yeah, I knew it was something that we shouldn't do. And I, I even thought when I saw it, we shouldn't watch this movie. But of the 10 of us that were there, one person stood up. And I remember at the end of that day, we're driving there, and here's this movie in this car, and we go and we put that movie in. And here's this guy that didn't want to watch it, that stood strong in Christ, but eventually gave in because of nine Christian brothers that said it's okay. And the whole time I'm miserable watching that movie because I'm thinking, this guy stood for holiness, and I pulled him down. See, we do that sometimes because we justify our own behavior and we want to pull others down to our level so we don't feel as guilty. I felt pretty good, like, hey, he's watching it now. Holier than now over there, sinful too. Be careful, church. Be careful not to be one that when somebody makes a stand for Christ, you pull them down. You, uh, you, that's, Christians, you don't have to live that holy. You don't have to live that excited. You don't have to go to church all the time. You know, it saddens me that we'll have people get saved and become Christians, and man, they'll say, you got church Sunday morning, you got church Sunday night, you got church Wednesday night. Man, I'm passionate about Bible study, I'm passionate, I'm excitement, and I've literally had people come to me later and say, you know what, I don't come anymore on Sunday nights, and I don't come anymore on Wednesday nights. I thought when I first became a Christian, you were supposed to. But then I started going, and I learned that it wasn't a big deal. And you know who they learned that from? The church. Because, sad to say, when we first get saved and filled by the Holy Spirit, we're passionate. And then we come to church in America, and people pour water on us all the time and say, cool it down. You're making me feel guilty. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Because you're actually living for Jesus in a world that doesn't live for Jesus. So, can't you fit into the world a little bit more? Daniel didn't do that. Daniel didn't do that. You know, uh, two pretty good illustrations of that. We don't grow poppies around here, I know. But poppy plants, they grow up. The tallest plants actually get choked out by the smallest plants under them. Anytime, you'll see poppy plants are almost always equal because those that grow up high, the other ones choke them out. Same thing, you put 20 crabs in a bucket. 
You ever gone to the ocean and caught crabs? We've done this before. You put 20 crabs in a bucket. One of those dudes will find out how to climb the side of that bucket and reach the top. But before he does, one of those other crabs at the bottom says, nope, you're not going. Pulls him down. Yes, so many times we, the church, we're that bucket of crabs. And when someone's really living for Jesus, I'm going to tell you the world is going to tear us down. But let us not be Christians that tear each other down. Let's be Christians that help each other up. That push each other to live for holiness. But when God raises you up, you can expect like Daniel, somebody, somewhere, the world, the flesh, the devil, and even sometimes God-loving people will try to pull you down. We see this story played out exactly like this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. Look at it. It says, And this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. So in other words, they do what all the politicians are doing right now in the world. They're saying, hey, we'll just find some dirt on our political rival. We'll just find uh, some dirt and we'll run some political ads about how bad he is. And so I love this verse, verse 4. Look at it in your Bibles. They try to find something. So the second part of verse 4, there's the word but in the Hebrew language, gar. It says but. I want you to underline that in your Bibles. But they could find no ground of accusation. No evidence of corruption. Man, I think that's quite a statement. They were unable to find anything that Daniel, the faithful man of God, was doing. Finally, verse 5, it says, you know what? If we can't do this, look what they say. We'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They knew ahead of time, look at his life, the only place we can accuse him, the only place we're going to be able to attack him is if we dig up something and we force something that causes him to disobey the law of his God, that's the only thing he's going to stand for. Man, I love that picture. And, and I just want you to see, so Daniel is living right. Would you all agree that? They couldn't find anything he did wrong. They couldn't find anything in his life or his government, his business. They say the only thing we can see about his life is he's 100% faithful to God. We've got to get him right there. So I want you to see, even though Daniel's living holy, even though he's living right, man, the world is going to oppose him adamantly. If you're not ready to face opposition for your obedience to God, you're not ready to be used by God. It's coming. I'm going to tell you, when you stand for Jesus, this happens. That's why we should never, ever worry when we face opposition. In fact, I, I firmly believe we ought to worry when we don't face opposition. I really think we ought to look at our lives and go, man, everything in my life is easy. We saw that this week in Ecuador. Man, we, from the, and I'll tell you a story later on about showing up. From the time we showed up to the time we left, man, there were, there were things in the world, situations, uh, sinful people, uh, cars breaking down, people getting sick. Man, we were getting sick. There, there were constantly a barrage of things against our bodies, against our minds, against our spirits, physical circumstances that were always coming against the drip. And I remember one evening, I was sitting out on the balcony in prayer, and there were two or three of us there, we were praying together. And I just simply said, you know what, I'm so glad things are becoming so difficult on this trip. I knew I was preaching this Sunday. I said, I'm so glad we've got all this opposition because it must mean that God's about to do something extraordinary in the lives of us and the lives of these men here. If it was just roses and easy, I would wonder, are we in the right place? Are we serving God? Are we going the right direction? 
That's exactly what happens. Man, Daniel's life, he's standing on prayer. He's standing for God. He's standing up. He's standing out as we talked about. And man, that means the world and Satan and the devil, man, everything's going to stand against what he's doing. If you read the story, you know how it goes. I'm not going to read this section. These three, two other administrators basically go to the king and they butter him up. I don't know how they did that. They may have said, man, king, you look wonderful. Have you lost weight? That kingly robe looks really good on you, king. You're the smartest and the wisest and the greatest king we've ever had. So they went to him and they, they butter him up. And then they said, how about you issue a law or decree that for the next 30 days, just 30 days, no one can pray to any god except for you. They have to pray to you because you are the greatest. You're, man, uh, the goat. Y'all know what that means? I know the students did. You're the greatest of all time. See, we got younger people that know too. You're the greatest of all time. And I think everybody ought to worship you just for 30 days. You just make that law. And the king thought, you know what? That sounds pretty good. King Darius was like most kings. He was very vulnerable to pride. It's like most of us very uh, vulnerable to, uh, you know, having his head inflated. And so that's what he did. He says, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. You guys, uh, I'll sign the law. Use the signet ring, sign the law. This created a a little bit of a problem for Daniel. Because the other two administrators knew he was a great man of prayer. I just want to ask a question here. If we were to ask the world about you or me, the world, I'm not talking about the church, I'm talking about people on the outside the world that don't like us really, would they say, I know that person as a great man of prayer? It really challenged me. How in the world did these two administrators that were foreign, that were from Babylon, that were worldly, that were not Christian, how did they know that, that Daniel was such a man of God, that Daniel was such a man of prayer? How did they know where to get him? Because he lived it out in front of them. He lived it out in front of them. You know, in this world today, if you have to have somebody that in this town ask you, well, what do you believe about your faith? I think we have a problem already. They ought to know where you stand. They ought to know it by your life. They ought to know it um, by your actions, by how you talk, how you walk, how you live. There's just something different about this person. Here's Daniel, 80 years old. Now, again, I want to come back to this. Um, You have to understand, this is not a cute, cuddly little kitty in the bottom of a pit. These are lions that haven't been fed. They're starving to death. And Daniel has an option here. He can either, it's not just stop praying. He can either pray to this king and not pray to his God for 30 days. Now, he has some options here. I want you to see that. His only option was not to continue praying. I want you to think about his options. What, what options might he have? He could have stopped praying. He could have stopped praying. He could have kept praying. There's actually a third option. Throw it up there, Terry. Could he have done that middle thing? What are you doing? Oh, taking a nap. What are you doing? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 well, I wasn't praying, no. I was just sitting here with my eyes closed. I mean, how does somebody know you're praying? How do they know? You have to tell them, right? You have to visibly tell them or show them or let them hear. So... I mean, could he have continued to pray to God without them knowing? Yeah, he could have faked it. I think that's probably my route. I'm a chicken. I would have thought, I'm not going to get eaten by lions. I mean, I, I could have faked it. 
He could have denied it. I'm not praying at all. I'm just taking a nap. I'm just resting my eyes. I'm just kind of tired. He could have prayed with his eyes open. He could have stopped doing it altogether. And so I'm asking the question, what in the world built that kind of faith in his life? How did he, as an 80-year-old man, have this deep faith in God that was willing to stand in strength even in the face of death? This second point, I want you to write it down. I think it's powerful. Daniel found his strength another way. Kneeling to pray is what will give you the strength to stand. Man, when you try to stand up for Jesus, I'm going to tell you, the world, the flesh, the devil, even believers are going to try to tear you down. And if you want strength to stand for God, if you want strength to stand before man, if you want strength to stand even before our spiritual enemy, uh, kneeling to pray is what will give you the strength to stand in your life. Verse 10 is so powerful. It says this, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees. Now, I want you to stop there. Daniel didn't start praying when they made the law. There's a difference. There's a difference. It wasn't that Daniel said, hey, I'm going to go be showy now about this. It wasn't that Daniel said, now I'm going to decide to pray now that they made that law. This verse is so important. It says, and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. See, Daniel didn't become a man of prayer when they made this law. He was a man of prayer. And see, our first response to trials should never be to panic, but always to pray. And that's what Daniel did. He did what he'd always done. He knew if he was going to stand, he needed to kneel before God and pray. When we got to Ecuador, it was 2 in the morning, Friday night, Saturday night, very late. We had to, we had to preach and teach at church the next day, um, get there. It's 2 in the morning. The road was closed on the way there. There was a traffic accident. So guys come out with machine guns and say, hey, you can't go this way. And we're like, no, we're not going that way. You tell us what way to go. So they say, oh, well, there's a wreck. They could have led us around. I mean, there was plenty of room. But they say, no, you can't go this way. You've got to go back. It was a two-hour circle to go the other way. They knew. They knew. They see a couple of uh, Americans in a car. They, it just, that's just how it goes. And they say, okay, y'all go, you, you go the other way. We knew. Our translator knew. So here we go, two-hour circle through the roughest area, rough roads. We finally get to the uh, hotel. It's 2, 2.30 in the morning. We're exhausted. We're tired. We're ringing the buzzer. You know, by then, the hotel manager, um, it's not like here. When it gets after 10 o'clock, you know what they go do? Sleep, because nobody should be out past 2 o'clock. So you ring the buzzer, and they're not going to answer. And we're on the street, not a good street, not a great part of town, uh, bringing this buzzer. Us, uh, a two pastors and a translator, um, the taxi or the car had already left. Here we are with our bags. And I'm thinking, where are we going to sleep? This just got real, right? And so we call the the hotel, no answer. We call the person in the States that made the reservations at the hotel, um, no answer. We call um, two guys, local missionaries in town, um, no answer there. And finally, I made this statement. It's just, it was just such a, you'd be so proud of your pastor in that moment. I turned to the guys there and I said, well, guys, I guess now all we can do, all we have left is to pray. This is it. Can you imagine how God hears that statement in heaven? All we can do, Lord, now is look to you. And God says, well, boys, you're up a creek without a paddle if it has to do with me. 
That's the Texas. God Southern, I guess. He doesn't say creek. He says creek. I, don't, I mean, can you imagine how heaven hears that? Oh, no, it's up to me now. What are we going to do? All you have me is left to call on. I, I don't know. God's never all we have left. God's all we have at all. Praying is not the last thing we can do. It's the most important thing we can do. Now, <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I, thought, um, I just told the guys. My translator's there. I I'm, 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 didn't know at that point how well of a Christian. I knew he was a Christian. And I said, I'm sorry for my faithless example. I'm sorry. Now you know what kind of preaching you're going to get all week. <sighs> Man, we spent time in prayer and Man, God was gracious, and eventually that door unlocked. And I love the fact, though, that Daniel didn't announce what he was going to do. He didn't go, hey, everybody, I'm going to go pray. That's what the Pharisees did. He didn't do that. He didn't say, hey, look, I'm so spiritual, and he didn't get out his selfie stick, right? Get his Bible in the right position, put his hands here. The only reason I know that is because I tried to send you all a picture from the balcony of me praying. Or reading my Bible, I thought, yeah, how spiritual. They didn't know your pastor's doing that. It's hard. My arm's not long enough. But that's what he, he did. He, he, didn't do, he, he just did exactly what he'd always done. That's what the text says. Jesus hated hypocritical public prayer. Look at me, you know. He did, Daniel didn't do that. He didn't, you know, purposely say, hey, everybody, I want to attract attention. He went and did what he had always done. Went to the same place at the same time and he got on his knees and he began to pray to God. Daniel had decided long before and I want to say that because I've come back to this and back to this in his life. If you haven't predecided your plan to get to know God, then chances you're not going to get to know God. If you haven't predecided how you're going to spend a relationship with Jesus, how you're going to spend time with him, how you're going to pray, how you're going to read your Bible, then probably you're not going to. You're just probably not. I learned that there. We got up at different times and, and we had different schedules. It was really hard sometimes to figure out where we were coming or going and preparing uh, messages and sermons. They would ask you to preach on just a moment's notice. Didn't know uh, every pastor had a church. They have church every night of the week then. So we'd end the class. Man, we'd taught 10 hours. One of the pastors would walk up and say, um, Brother Daniel, would you preach tonight at my church? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. So I'm on the way with my Bible writing a sermon in the notes. And by the way, everybody knows that you're a doctorate and you're here teaching a preaching course, right? That's not the kind of place you want to write your sermon on the way to the church. But you just, yeah, you do because people want to hear and it's an opportunity to share the gospel. And so this is what I learned. I said, I'm not going to have time to pray all day. I'm not going to have time to spend time with God all day. So I would get up two hours in the morning before everybody else, and I have a picture of the balcony. Man, it was a pretty place. And I would watch the sun come up every morning like that. Now, I want to confess to you, it's easier to do in a place like that. It just is. You know, in my house, when you do it, you, you, you know, you have socks on the floor and, you know, last night's dinner on the table because we're so tired. It's just a little bit different. But here it was easy. I'd go out to this balcony. I'd open my Bible every morning. As the housekeeper swept the stairs, they would see me every day. Because I knew if I'm going to stand, if I'm going to preach, if I'm going to teach, I've got to be filled up. I've got, I've got to get in God's presence. And so I love how Daniel does it. What was Daniel's position of prayer, by the way? He knelt down. 
Now, again, I'm not making a big deal about our physical position, but I want you to write this down. He could stand before men because he had knelt before God. You haven't wrote that down already. It's powerful. He could stand before this world because he knelt before his God. He was able to stand before people because he first spelt, uh, spent time in the presence of God. And I know I don't believe physical posture matters that much, but at the same time, it's really hard for me to worship like this. It's really hard for me to worship like this. But there is something about worshiping like this that just causes your heart to open up to God. If you've never tried it, I want to encourage you to. Let's get past the fact that we're Baptists. I've spent uh, just now a week with Baptists in Ecuador, and every time we prayed, the men opened their arms to God. They were Baptists, Southern Baptists. Right? Because it's really hard to get uh, really connected with God in like this. And we're thinking about what Highway 6 has to eat. Or like this. <sighs> Rocky didn't pick the song that I wanted today. But there's something about this. There's something about praying like this. It just brings some difference in my mind and heart. And if you can't get on your knees, that's okay. There's sometimes I will lay down on the floor and I will suck carpet because I want to get as low as I can go because God is so high and my posture of prayer changes my heart. That's why Daniel got on his knees. He humbled himself before his God and he predetermined, I'm going to be a man of prayer and I'm going to be humble because as I fall down on my knees to God, God's going to give me the strength to stand before men. That's what he did. And so this is what happens in our minds. If God calls me to stand like that, we ask this question, church. I think it's the worst question um, for Christians to ever ask. I think it causes our churches to be weak and our faith to be weak and American Christianity to just be kind of, eh. We ask this question, well, God, if I stand, what happens if I do that? God, I know you're calling me not to have this ungodly relationship with this guy in high school. And God, you're calling me to break up with my boyfriend. But God, what if I stand and I obey in that area? What if I don't ever meet anybody? And then what if I'm single? And what if I'm just an old cat lady at home alone? Or, God, I know you've called me to, to give. I know you've called me to abandon the, my love for money and to give, but God, what if I give and I, and I what? What happens? I run out of money. What if I can't pay my bills because I tithe? So God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that because the what if, it's just, it's too much. What, God, if I stand at work? What if I stand up for you at work? And man, people don't like that. And I don't get that promotion. I don't get that job. What if, God... Uh, I lose my job. What if people get angry at me and I don't have friends? And what if they think that I'm super judgy and they don't like me? What if? Don't we often think that way? That what if question plagues our life. Well, I'm going to give you good news. <laughs> that what if question always doesn't have a pleasant answer. What would Daniel's what-if question have been? What would it have been? What was Daniel's what-if question? Just, just think about it. What if... Let's fill it out. What's about to happen to him? If he prays, 
thrown in the lion's den. So his what if question would have been, what if the lions, what? Eat me. What if, God, the lions eat me? I will suggest to you that that is a lot bigger and more difficult what if question than the ones that we ask in our lives. What if the lions eat me? What if they do what hungry lions do and eat me? Because this is not a Disney movie. This is real life. And you say, well, our sovereign God won't allow that to happen, except that all throughout the history of the church, guess what? Early Christians were put on post and burned with fire. Early Christians were actually thrown into the Colosseum and fed to what? Lions. And our sovereign, loving God allowed it to happen in his plan for their lives. So we can't say God doesn't allow people to be eaten by lions. We can't say that. That what if question doesn't always have a good answer. I know it does in our story today, but did it have a good answer for the Apostle Paul in Rome? It doesn't always have a good answer. Yet, we ask it all the time. What if I stand up and it doesn't work out? What if I stand up and my kids pay the price? What if I stand up and I'm persecuted? What if I tell you something cool that happened this week? There's a 14, 15-year-old girl all week in our expository preaching class. 14 years old. 14 years old. Do I have anybody 14 in here? 15? 14? 1? 15? 15? 14 and 15-year-old. This little girl... Here's a picture of her. There she is. Sorry, it's bad. That's the cell phone. She's in our class all week. We teach 10 hours a day. They write every word down. Every word. Just the whole time. Because they want to they have it. They want to read it later. Every word. 14 years old. 10 hours a day. 5 days. 50 hours of teaching. She wrote every word. Didn't ask for a break. Didn't ask for, you know, didn't laugh. Didn't text a friend. Didn't have, I mean... That's what she was there to do. She chose to be there. Then in the week, we, we, we've taught 50 hours on expository preaching. We don't expect, we're, we're Friday, we're going to spend the day listening to these preachers preach. There were 30-something preachers there. She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't a preacher. We didn't expect, we didn't even count her in on the time block to preach. These men are going up there, pro- professional call pastors, practicing the methods that we taught them, which are very complicated, you have to outline an entire passage. You have to break down every word. You have to read commentaries. You have to find your main sermon point for the text. Then you have to find your main sermon point for your sermon. And then you have to find the sinful fallen condition. I know I'm using words that you're like, I don't even know what all that means. Because I want you to see, this girl's 14. wasn't easy what what we had taught all week. And in the middle of the week, she raises her hand in the middle of the day, Friday, and she says, I know I'm not a pastor, but do you think that I could give it a try and preach an expository sermon? 14 years old. Hmm. There she is, preaching her heart out. 14 years old. She even hit the pulpit once. Man, it was cool. Here she was before 
you know, 30 pastors and two doctorate professors in their mind. And there she was. I'll preach. Look what happens. Daniel, uh, verse 22. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, not one wound was found on him. I love this phrase. The king shows up in the morning. I love what he says. He says, Daniel, are you okay? Has your God, whom you have continually served, has he been able to deliver you? And Daniel says, yes, king. My God sent his angel. If you're facing some sort of opposition, and I know so many of us are, remember when God raises you up, people will try to tear you down. Remember, remember, remember that kneeling to pray will give you the strength to stand. And you don't have to worry about the result. That what if question, you don't have to worry about that. You leave that result to God and you just do what God has called you to do. Because when you do what's right, you can trust God with the result. Now I'm going to end with just this question. Daniel didn't ask, what if I get ate by the lions? He was more concerned with a much more powerful question. And I want you to consider it this morning. He wasn't concerned with, what if I get ate by lions? He wasn't concerned with, what's going to happen if I stand? He asked a greater question, a question that should terrify us so much more. He asked the question, what if I don't stand? What if I don't stand? What if I'm so focused on my life and my circumstances that I don't stand for God? Now, I don't know. I've heard this story since I was... In kindergarten. How many know what flannel graph is? You young people, I, I hate that you don't know what flannel graph is. We need to buy some flannel graph and show them. You know, you, you, you tear, tore out the little characters. And you tore out the little lions. And you have this board. And they stuck magically. I always saw as a kid, that's magic. The little paper characters. And so you would tell the story to your children. You'd say... Who wants to put Daniel up there? And uh, they're like, oh, I will. And you take Daniel and you stick him up on the little flannel graph and here are these little nice soft kittens, right? And Daniel, for some reason, was always sleeping on the cats. You're like, oh, that's so cute. Look at Daniel. He was always young too, by the way. He's never 80 years old. I never remember gray-headed, bald-headed Daniel. I, you know why we tell that story thousands of years later? Daniel didn't ask what if. What, what's going to happen, God? He said, what if I don't? What if I don't stand? What will I miss out? What will it mean? So parents, before you think, well, if I stand, what will happen to my kids? What if they're mistreated? What if people are mean to them? What if they miss out on athletic opportunities or academic opportunities? I want you to ask the better question. What if I don't stand for faith in my life? What will happen to them? What will happen to me financially if I am selfish and stingy and I love money and I work for money? What happens in my life if I don't give to God? What will it mean in my marriage if I don't stand up for Jesus? What will it mean? Stop asking, what if I stand, what will happen? Start asking, what if I don't stand? 
I didn't want to go to Ecuador last week. I really didn't want to go. I love my family. I love my kids. I love my comfort. I love my church. Man, I, I didn't want to go. I'm not comfortable doing that. But one night when I was praying about it, I just got to thinking about those pastors. What will I mean in their life if I don't go? Instead of what's going to happen when I go, what's going to happen if I don't? Man, church, that's such a powerful question to ask. What are you going to miss out on? I'll tell you, we wouldn't be telling Daniel's story thousands of years later had he not stood for God by kneeling in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. Father, there may be someone in this audience today. Father, they're asking the question, well, what if I put my faith in Jesus and I'm made fun of? What if I make a decision for Christ in the church and, and, and it's embarrassing? What will people think about me, God? What will people say about me? What if I become a Christian and I still struggle with sin? Father, they're asking the wrong question today. They should be asking, what will happen to me if I die without Jesus Christ? And that's a question we can't afford to answer. We can't afford to take that risk because we know that there's no life without Jesus. So Father, I, I thought I'd lift up today those in this church that may not be believers today. I pray that they would ask the right question, that they wouldn't let fear and doubt and, and uh, you know, just being embarrassed keep them from standing for you today and putting their faith and trust in you. And man, Lord, we're going to make it so easy. They just step down this aisle and they accept you as their Lord and Savior. Father, maybe there's somebody in this building today that's not part of a local church. They never joined this church. They never said, this is where I'm called and this is where I want to serve. And Father, they may think today, what if, what if they don't accept? Or what if I don't fit in? Or uh, Lord, I, I just pray that they would ask the right question here. What if I'm not involved in a local church? What if I'm not serving God? That's the dangerous way to live. Father, help us as believers to ask the right question. When it comes to living out our faith, Father, we don't want to do life without You. Father, help us to be a, a church that's standing strong because we're on our knees. A praying church. A church that lives their faith out in the open. That, Father, pulls people up rather than pulling them down. Father, I pray if there's one person here today that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, that they would come and put their faith and trust in You today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to have an invitation. If you have a decision to make, you come.